to Art Dad Doesn't Like. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Bede, also known as Dr. Harris. <laughs> Are you just asserting your um, credentials because you know we're going to be talking about something related to another doctor today? Yes, I mean, I, I always uh, am very keen to assert in public that I am indeed a doctor, um, though the, being a doctor of philosophy is often not much help to people in an emergency. Although I remember, well, not even I remember, because you still say this, you know, any time I have any kind of qualm about anything you say, you say, trust me, I'm a doctor, which (laughs) (laughs) whenever someone has to say, trust me, it really doesn't inspire confidence. No, I guess not. Well, the reason why we're talking about uh, something to do with, dare I say, a real doctor today is that, Dad, I have let you know that the work we're talking about is related to the anatomy lesson of Dr. Nicholas Taupe by Rembrandt, uh, which is a work from 1632, and you're familiar with that one, aren't you? Oh, yeah, I really like that. I'm very interested in talking about that. It's a splendid painting. Well, unfortunately for you, I've led you a bit astray as you often did in raising me, so it's your just desserts, because we're not talking exactly about that painting today. We're talking about a photograph by Stefan van Fletteren uh, called Corpus Number 1632. Oh, okay. Um, Right. That's a very different um, kettle of fish, isn't it? So I've sent you a link to the the picture so you can have a look now and you can tell us what you see and maybe you can um, try and figure out what the link is between this picture and the anatomy lesson. Right. Well, on this picture, I see a black background and just a right hand, which seems to have been severed from its owner and looks a little bit on the verge of decay and I mean I can see that the black background is reminiscent of the um, background to the Rembrandt painting but I don't quite understand why someone would just paint a hand in isolation. Uh, Well we'll get into the reasons why uh, and everything in a minute but um, on the basis of your evocative description of this black background and you can sort of see a a shadowy rectangle that I guess recalls the table that the anatomy lesson is taking place on in the Rembrandt painting, but then just a slightly decayed hand. Do you like it? No, I I, I fail this test every single time in this podcast, don't I? I I would say that I, I don't like a picture of a decaying hand. Oh, I think I could have guessed that. I'm sure all of our listeners could have too, but I mean... I think it's about time that you failed a test. You, For those who don't know, Dad um, has been for a very long time uh, a law lecturer in various universities, and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there now taking glee that you are failing tests because <laughs> I know you're quite a hard marker. In fact, that's been brought to my attention by people I've met who've been your students. It's always quite a terrifying thing when people say to me, is Bede Harris your father? You know, I don't know what the reaction is going to be if I say yes. Oh, well, that sort of brings to mind another work of art, doesn't it? From, um, I don't know when it was painted, but it was meant to be, it was set during the English Civil War. And there's this table of very stern roundheads saying to this little cavalier boy, when did you last see your father? 
Um. <laughs> well, I can tell you if there was a civil war now and I was asked to give up your location, you know, you better hide quickly. Anyway, uh, so we've, we've established a firm baseline that you don't like pictures of decaying hands. But I'll give you a bit of context to start trying to win you over. So Stefan von Fletteren, who took this picture, is a Belgian photographer and he has worked as a photojournalist. Uh, but he's also done some very interesting projects, one of which I think uh, you might quite like. So in 1999, he travelled around the US with another photographer friend of his, Robert Huber, uh, and they followed in the steps of Elvis Presley, and they were both dressed in that classic disco white jumpsuit and they developed these Elvis-inspired personas. So Van Fletteren would, would pose as Presley and Robert Hoover would pose as Elvis. So they took all these photos of each other in various places in the US, I guess exploring how that persona lives on. And you really like Elvis, so maybe... Oh, <clears throat> yeah, without a doubt. And... I mean, despite all the events that have happened in happened in the United Kingdom in September, we know who the king is, don't we? Yes, it's Elvis, isn't it? Yeah, Elvis is always the king. Yes. <laughs> and there's your other um, other great joke about Shakespeare as well. Oh yeah, the world's a stage in which each must play his part. Well, that's not Shakespeare; it's Elvis, and it's in his song, um, "Love Me Tender." Well, we learn something every day. I think everyone's learned here that you weren't a fan of Shakespeare in school. Anyway, uh, so that's that's all not terribly relevant, but I thought that the Elvis reference might soften you a little bit to the artist at least. So Corpus number 1632, which is obviously also a reference to the year in which the anatomy lesson, this very famous Rembrandt, uh, picture was painted is part of a intervention or exhibition at the and I'm going to butcher this but maybe with your knowledge of Afrikaans you can correct me the Maurits House voice yes I guess no that's a good pronunciation yeah in the Hague uh, which is a um, a lovely old art gallery in the Hague and this exhibition is called and I think you're not going to like the title of this exhibition because you don't like sort of artistic, you like a play on words, but not what I'm sure you would cast as a, a pretentious play on words, flash back. So there's a little strike. It's not a slash. It's just sort of a break in the word flashback in the name of this exhibition. That's not very sophisticated, is it? So as a play on words goes. <laughs> Actually, do you remember a friend of mine at school? Oh yes, the 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 mother of of the girl who was at school with you who'd gone there said she walked around just to try and deal with all the flashbacks. Um, <laughs> so it must have been pretty traumatic. I think so. You know, she was a very unassuming um, and calm person. I think she probably more meant just memories uh but it comes out in quite a dramatic way um (laughs) anyway so flashback uh is looking to put um i guess to have these new eyes and new artists picking up where the old left off so contemporary artists like van fletter and taking inspiration from some of the masterpieces in the museum 
And obviously here Van Flechtman chose the anatomy lesson of Dr. Nicholas Toll. And this will be very familiar to a lot of people, if not by name, the image might be quite familiar. So uh, Dr. Tolp was the city anatomist of the Amsterdam Guild of Surgeons. Uh, and this portrait shows him giving an anatomy lesson to some students. And this was one of Rembrandt's early masterpieces. And it shows the students and the teacher examining the musculature of the arm. Uh, do you know how old Rembrandt was when he painted that painting? No. He was 25, which is the same age as me. Astounding. And um, I'm hoping that there is somewhere in your room a masterpiece leaning against the wall that you'll sell and give me some of the proceedings of. I'm not. Why do you think you deserve some of the proceedings? Well, I, who else, you know, would you distribute them to? Probably um, some cat home or cat-based charity, I guess. <laughs> Maybe. I do make my little... um pottery things so maybe I'll become a great potter and one of my little fishes will sell for an enormous amount you were still at university at that age I mean I am but you were still doing a bachelor's degree so we don't all yes but I was doing my second bachelor's degree because I'd already done an honors degree and then I was doing a graduate LLB um (laughs) But, I mean, look, I think the conclusive end to this argument is by the time he was 25, Napoleon was a general. Are you a general? No, I'm not a general. (laughs) Right. Only you would hold up Napoleon as a paragon of achievement. Uh, Anyway. Anatomy lessons were at this time social events, and I think, you know, that's sort of obvious by the grandeur of uh, the anatomy lesson. It's a very large painting, and you can see everyone's dressed in their best best clothes. Uh, but none of that is visible in the painting, oh, sorry, the photograph by Van Fletteren, because what he's photographing is what Rembrandt never actually saw. Uh, which is Aris Kint, who's uh, this criminal whose body is uh, the subject of the anatomy lesson, his right hand. And the reason why the hand was never actually there is that he had been sentenced before and had his right hand cut off, which is uh, a classic punishment for a thief. And so Ben Fletteren said, that, uh, I want to photograph the only thing that Rembrandt never saw. So are you saying that the Rembrandt picture, which shows um, told performing a dissection of the left hand and the right hand resting on the table there wasn't a right hand there when Rembrandt painted it no so it was um an incomplete body and obviously he's filling in the gap but in terms of painting something that Rembrandt never saw you know it's quite an interesting reflection of the way that we think about these masterworks you know that there's a power in seeing something that a, a a master painter like Rembrandt never saw, but that he imagined into the work. So I'm, I mean, I'm I'm dying to ask because I mean I can I can I'm quite uh, you know I applaud um, Van Fletteren for knowing this detail that that right hand wasn't there, but where did he get the hand that he painted or rather sorry photographed? Um, I mean, how do you get hold of a severed hand legally? (laughs) Um, I actually don't know. I've, you know, I did some research prior to this and I don't know where he 
got a hand, but I did hear in an interview that he gave that it is indeed a real hand. Uh, and we don't, we certainly don't want to cast aspersions on the artist by you raising this question of how can one get hold of a, a severed hand legally, um, which obviously is a, a scary foreshadowing that you can think of plenty of ideas of how you can get one illegally. Um, but that actually raises the idea. I mean, so in terms of using the real hand, as you said earlier, you know, it's sort of decaying. It's, it looks quite bluntly severed. But I think that brings an intensity to the work, um, especially as it's against the black background. You, before, when we've talked about um, Andreas Serrano's Peace Christ, said that you, that the idea of it being urine uh, that was shown in the photograph really ruined it for you. But I mean, do you have any feeling about this being a fake hand versus a real hand? Would you like the work better if it was fake? Or do you actually think that it being a real hand and the intensity that brings with it makes it more interesting? Um, well, I think it's, again, you know, we're in this zone of what is pleasant and what is impactful because certainly knowing that it's a real hand does make it harder to look at but also adds to the impact. And, you know, when I saw it, the first thought that came to my mind was actually a movie made in the early 80s with Michael Caine called, unsurprisingly, The Hand, um, <laughs> about a person who'd been in an accident and lost his hand. But when they buried the hand, it resurrected itself and came, you know, like skittering along the ground, with using its fingers as legs and climbing up the legs of tables and strangling people and doing horrible things to them. So, um, you, you know, that's I, I thought of it almost like a prop for a horror film. Well, in that film, had the guy who lost his hand been a criminal? I mean, why did the hand have this criminal intent? No, he was uh, a, a writer, as I recall. The hand was just malicious. Um, you know, it's sort of that part of, of of the body seemed to have or did have a a spirit within it. And, you know, I think you have to be really, really careful, for example, when you have a transplant. Like I, I saw a documentary about a transplant surgeon in France who was sort of um, cutting edge, excuse the pun, um, <laughs> surgeon. And he had um, come to the aid of this uh, industrial worker, I think, who'd lost a hand and had found or obtained a hand donated by the family of a person who died and stitched it onto this man. And it worked. I mean, you, you saw the patient moving the fingers, but he seemed a little bit, um, I don't know, withdrawn or disturbed by it. And, and when you looked at the hand, you realized it, it would look very feminine. And it was, I, I think, obviously a lady's hand, which had been stitched onto this man. So yeah, that was very disconcerting. Well, yes. I, I mean, for one thing, to get back to the film, maybe this writer in the movie was an art critic and so had a very malicious hand. Maybe that's why. I mean, art critics aren't known for being nice, so maybe that's the link there. But in terms of the surgery, I think aside from any gender perspective, a hand is a very personal thing. I mean, people talk about the eyes being windows to the souls, but 
hands and how uh, gentle or rough they are or what kind of work you can see someone's been doing or how they hold themselves or what gestures they make with their hands can be very revealing about a person. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I think that hands are actually either enhanced or detract from a person's looks. I, I agree with that. And, and of course, they tell a lot about a person's life. I mean, as, you know, someone who unsuccessfully tried to ask you to do various forms of manual labor around the home, I think that if you'd been alive during the French Revolution and you'd been in the court of Louis XVI and had tried to get out on a carriage dressed as a as a peasant girl, and you'd been stopped by one of the revolutionary guards and they'd looked at your hands, the game would have been up straight away, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, maybe I would have had very rough fingertips from all of the embroidery I was doing. So maybe I would have gotten through. Perhaps, yes. <laughs> yes, it's, it's funny that hands... When I mean, they're not something you don't go on a date with someone and stare at their hands and think, oh, gee, that's a nice pair of hands <laughs> <laughs> you've got. <laughs> no, I guess they're a, they're a secondary consideration, I would say. But I think it is, it's true, though, no matter if they're uh, secondary, um, that they are something that you can find more or less attractive because they yeah I mean they reflect so much about a person but they're also very expressive and it's well known how difficult it is to paint or draw hands here we're working with a photograph however I think that the principle still stands that they would be a difficult thing to photograph I mean here it's much harder to look at and I'm sure to take a photograph of because you know it's a real hand. So it has a real history attached. I mean, if you were taking a photograph of a fake hand, there would be some remove, but it's much harder to look at when you know it's a real hand with all of those personal associations around it. Yes, I, 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 I'm sure that when you do look at it, you wonder what was the life of the person to whom it belonged and maybe, yeah, I mean, I... I find myself looking at the shape of the fingers to try and get some inclination as to what their experiences were. And, of course, you feel very sad for them at having lost their hand. So it, it, does, um, it does evoke those human emotions. I mean, in that sense, the anatomy lesson, you know, this brings the whole point of this piece is to reflect on uh, the anatomy lesson by Rembrandt. And it brings us back there because in the anatomy lesson, the fact that you can, you see a complete person being dissected, of course, but you see a complete person still has its hand, you lose uh, the sense of a personal connection. You don't sit there looking at Rembrandt's painting and think, what a poor end for this criminal. Look, he's lost a hand. He's had, I suppose, a life of crime however you know there would have been a lot of pressures of poverty that would have led to crime I mean indeed still today but uh in the 1600s of course as well in that sense by Rembrandt recreating the hand it's an inverse because he takes away some of that personal story 
Yes, I, I mean, you know, when you put it like that, if Rembrandt had painted the body as it was, with the left hand being dissected, and you, you can accept that that's happening, and the right hand missing, I think, you know, the impact would have been taken away, or uh, perhaps more than halved, um, from the hand being dissected, and people wouldn't have looked at the picture as they do now and say, oh, isn't that interesting seeing what surgeons did in the 17th century and what the muscles and tendons in the left arm look like. They would rather have said, I wonder how this person lost their right hand. And I think in that sense, it takes away uh, so much, you know, the continued existence of the anatomy lesson continues to take away so much of the agency and power and dignity of R.S. Kind, because we must also remember that, of course, in the 17th century, the bodies that were used for these anatomy lessons, it, it's not, well, certainly not in this case, as though this man had donated his body to science, as people do now. It was something done against his will, and the reason why it was able to be done against his will was that he was he was the victim of a court that took away his life and then continued to take away uh, his autonomy over his body through this dissection. And Rembrandt erases that, ironically, by adding a hand. Yes, uh, that that is a real paradox. I mean, did, um, in this instance, Van Fletteren say that his, you know, was there any description by him of the work in which he discloses that his purpose was to rehumanize the person who was being dissected? Uh, no, not that I found. However, um, he did say, well, for one thing, let's talk about the size of the piece. This is a very, very large photo. And when you view it in the museum in The Hague, uh, it's like the size of a history painting, which was history paintings were considered, you know, they had this idea of a hierarchy of different forms of art and history painting was right at the top. By having this, you know, and the scale is similar to the anatomy lesson itself, but the only focus is the hand. In that sense, by playing with uh, this old-fashioned hierarchy of the arts and placing this hand at the very top uh, with um, the size and the genre that Van Fletteren was using, that could be considered a way of giving the dignity back. You know, he's placing the the concept of the personal experience of Aris Kint on par with what is essentially a society painting, showing these uh, anatomists and doctors, yes, conducting a dissection, but also flaunting their status as men of science. Yes, and I think, you know, just as when we were speaking about the Piss Christ uh, artwork, we said <clears throat> that its meaning uh, it, it comes not from the art standing alone, but from Serrano's description of why he painted it. In this instance, or took the photograph rather, in this instance, the power of this image, which would be meaningless if you didn't know, comes from the fact that the top picture exists. Yes, and I mean, here, I mean, before you've raised this question to me again and again, <laughs> do you need to know the title? Do you need to know the background? But here, because it's part of this flashback exhibition, the connection is very, very clear. 
and indeed the works are in the same room you know you walk into the room on one one wall is Rembrandt's piece on the uh, perpendicular wall is Van Fletteren's and you know interestingly I found when I visited the gallery you know people of course go to galleries a lot of people uh, go to galleries just to see the masterpieces which to me is perfectly fine that's all that some people want to see so they you know will go to for example the Moritz house and the Hague they'll see the girl with the pearl earring and they'll see the anatomy lesson and then they've seen these two masterpieces that they've heard of and that are so uh, present in our common visual consciousness but a lot of people were stopping to really look at the photo of the hand and I think that's because it adds new meaning to this masterpiece and it's very easy to just walk quite quickly by these masterpieces without looking too long because we are so familiar with them. But when you have this addition, it adds something. So I think that's really positive. Yes, yes, it is. Um, I, I also, you know, again, I, I hesitate to advise artists, but the thought occurred to me that, and I realised that because artists work in different media, that he could have expanded the impact of this work by combining the visual with the auditory and had a sound clip running next to the painting of the sound of one hand clapping. Do you want to explain your interest in one hand clapping? Yes. Well, it comes from a a part of Hunter S. Thompson's diaries where he said he'd always been infuriated by this... um, conundrum that I, I think I think he said will originated in um, Buddhism um, about the sound of one hand clapping and you know it was meant to tease the mind but he found it irritating so and I don't know whether he actually did this or whether this was just one of his flights of fancy he said he came across a monk and he said to the monk I know the secret of the question what is the sound of one hand clapping and the monk said, what is it? And Hunter S. Thompson says that he hits him across the ear and said, that's the sound of one hand clapping. Well, here, you know, maybe this is Aris Kint's opportunity to slap back at the people yes. who dehumanised him. Yes. I'd like to bring up, actually, you say you always hate it when your students say to you, that they'd like to bring something up because it makes you think of vomit. So I'll revise what I've said. I'd like to mention one more thing that Van Fletteren said about uh, his photo, and that's that, you know, he really reflected over this concept for months, over half a year. But looking back at uh, the painting and his photograph, he said that the left hand is like a belief in science, a belief in a future that by examining and searching, we will understand the body and find solutions for illness, but that the right hand is about the past. So it's a, a difference between a right hand looking at the past and left hand about the future. So there's a contradiction in this one person or this one body. But to me, and you can tell me what you think, I think, yes, the right hand is about the past, you know, revealing R.S. Kint's past, but in the way that we've said it brings back some humanity to him, I think it's also about the future, you know, imagining a future where people have more power over their own lives and their own stories. Yes, I think that's a, a really good analysis. Well, on the basis 
of what you've admitted as some really good analysis. Do you like this piece now? Um, <laughs> this is the question that I'm always thrown by at the end of these. I will say that I, I definitely appreciate it, but I find it pretty ghoulish. Okay. So it's a no, you're not going to, you're not even going to bring up the idea of hanging this one in the house? No, I don't think so, um, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay, well, I'm glad that you appreciate it. Would you want to go and see it at the museum? Oh, yeah, very definitely, because it's interesting. Okay, well, good. I'm glad that you find it interesting. We've um, got something of a win. Uh, do you, on that note, have any advice to parents about punishing children? We've been talking a lot about punishments meted out to Iris Kintia. You, uh, happily, you never cut off my hand, but I don't think I ever stole anything either. So who knows what could have happened otherwise. But for parents, I mean, surely you wouldn't want the injustice of your own punishments made plain like Van Fletter and his son here. So what would you say to parents who need to punish children? Um, well, what I think I would say is I would urge parents to agitate for law reform in this regard because um, it's not so much when your children do things around your own house that's a problem. That's to be expected. That's part of the sort of economic price of having children. Do they break things and things like that? But what if they do it in someone else's house? That That is a risk that sort of hovers over every parent's mind. And therefore, what I would say to parents who might fear being sued by people on the basis of their parents' children having done something wrong, having broken property, is to agitate for the return of um, a doctrine from Roman law that I'm very fond of called noxal surrender. And under the doctrine of noxal surrender, which applied to slaves, children, and animals, if any of those entities caused damage to someone else, the owner of the slave, child, or animal could just say, okay, uh, I'm not going to pay you damage for your smashed crockery or your trampled crops. Here is the slave or the child or the animal, and you can keep them. Well, that's for you, two of us with one stone. You don't have to pay off the debt and you don't have to deal with your child. That's right. <laughs> Next time we're going to be discussing something which hopefully you'll like because it concerns a country that you're very interested in because we'll be discussing the German pavilion from the Sears Venice Biennale, which was uh, by Maria Eichhorn, and it's called Places of Remembrance and Resistance. I'm looking forward to that very much. Good. Well, I'll hold you to that and make sure that you like it by the end of next episode. <laughs> uh, thank you to everyone for joining us for this episode of Art Dad Doesn't Like, and we hope that you'll be here listening next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.